Hi, this is Anishka Fernandopoli. I hope this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button under my picture on dharmaseed.org or go to my website, anushkaf.org, A-N-U-S-H-K-A-F.org, and click on donate. Thanks. I appreciate your support. So we're going to get started in a moment. So if you can make your way back to your seat. So it's good to be here with you and a becoming cooler evening here. I thought first I'd introduce myself uh, to you. This is my first time speaking at this particular group, although I've done a lot of uh, teaching at Spirit Rock over the last uh, four or five years or so. My name is Anushka Fernandopoli. I live in San Francisco. Uh, I've lived there for about 10 years. I was born and raised on the East Coast which is where I started uh, doing uh, Vipassana practice about 20 years ago. And um, I've been teaching about the last five or so years. And uh, my family is originally from Sri Lanka, um, although I immigrated in utero uh, <laughs> with my mom and came out in Baltimore there. <laughs> And uh, grew up in a community that was a Sri Lankan community in which most families were Buddhist, although my family was actually a Christian Catholic. Um, but got interested um, at an early age in some um, questions about life and death and time and things like that, and then uh, sought out answers. Started reading a lot of things, started reading a lot of Dharma uh, books, and then uh, finally found my way to practice when I was in uh, college. Um, and I spent several years practicing in uh, retreat centers, in monasteries. I actually went back to Sri Lanka and spent um, a year or two there practicing in monasteries and then in India also. And then since then came back and uh, have sort of more integrated um, lay life. So I've had some period of pure uh, retreat, more monastic-like practice. But um, really I've gotten um, a lot out of being a lay person, living a regular life, uh, having a job. I went to grad school. I got an MBA. Uh, my current incarnation is that I teach uh, Dharma. I teach retreats and classes, things like that. I actually um, just finished the uh, Dharma teacher training at Spirit Rock that Jack was one of the teachers of, which I think is how I come to sit here before you tonight. He's trying to debut us little by little or something like that, you know. <laughs> Um, also, I've been teaching retreats here. I taught a couple this summer. I'm teaching again in um, November, December with um, Eugene Cash and some of the other teachers from San Francisco Insight. Um, so mostly I teach in the city, 
uh, San Francisco Insight, East Bay Meditation Center in Oakland. Um, I also have a LGBT meditation group that I teach in the city, um, but also travel to um, different parts of the country to teach retreats and things like that. And then other parts of my life are, um, I do uh, consulting work with uh, mostly nonprofit groups, kind of organizational development consulting, which was, has been my um, former full-time career until a couple years ago. And then um, I also do coaching work with individuals, like one-on-one -on -one coaching with people who are leaders and also just people who are trying to inquire into their life in some way. So that's a little bit about me. And in the course of my practice, uh, I've had the opportunity to explore many different uh, dimensions of the uh, path of Dharma. So I'll just share a little bit about you, so a little bit with you about generally how I see that. And then also hone on this particular topic around um, technology, which is interesting to me uh, at this particular point. So the teachings that you hear here, if, if you come here regularly, or the teachings of the Buddha are often called the, the Dhamma, right? And that means the teachings about the truth of the way things are. So I find that kind of comforting to hear. It's the truth of the way things are, right? So the Buddha was a guy, a historical person, who inquired into life and who cultivated his mind. And then using basically the tool of awareness, uh, of investigation, of the different qualities that we cultivate here, he was able to penetrate very deeply into what the true nature is of reality. What's the true nature of our life? What's the true, true nature of who we are? So thus he became enlightened, what we call enlightened, right? And then lived out his days uh, in that way of teaching. So the encouraging thing about that is that it's not like something he made up or an esoteric system, even though there have become many different uh, developments of uh, meditative technology and this and that. But basically what we're learning about is the way things are and learning about that through our direct experience of paying attention in our own mind-body system. And actually everything that you need to see into the way things are is right here in your own body-mind uh, system. So among the things that we learn are about uh, what is true about what we perceive to be real. Right? So what's true about what is reality? So usually what we call our life is actually this changing stream of experience that comes in through our different sense doors. Right? So seeing things, smelling things, tasting things, feeling things in the body, uh, hearing things. Right? So those are your five uh, customary sense doors that you learned about in kindergarten and so on. right? And then the sixth sense door that the Buddha talks about is the mind. Right? So the mind is also a sense door which receives thoughts, impressions, memories. Then we categorize those into like plans and uh, memories and ideas and images and different things. But basically, the mind is a sense door that receives these, and it's the same as the nose receiving a smell, the eye receiving sight, right? So in connection with consciousness, then, what we call our life appears in these six different flavors, right? Coming and going in this very quick dance that then looks like a solid, continuous whole that we call me and you and everything like that. Right? But the truth is that everything is actually always changing. So the solidity that we seem to perceive is actually an illusion. Right? And so when we pay attention, we can actually experience this in the way that it really is as this constantly changing, moving dance of who we are, who others are, what anything is. Right? Because everything is always changing, nothing is actually a solid thing, including, most importantly, ourself, right? of what we usually perceive. But when we try to relate to other people and other things as solid, uh, and they're really not, then it's a recipe for disaster. right? Kind of like if you had an ice sculpture and you wanted to keep it forever, right? It will melt, right? That's just the way it is, right? Or a sandcastle or 
a smoke ring, right? It's just going to change. It's just going to morph. That's how it is. You can't hold on to it, right? And that's true of everything, really, in our existence. So then that leads us to uh, dukkha, right? So what I've just uh, talked about is a quick run through what's often called the three characteristics of change, impermanence, anatta, non-permanent selfhood of things or of ourself, and then of dukkha, of the strain, stress, suffering, unsatisfactoriness that exists in our usual phenomenal existence. Somewhat based on just the way, you know, birth and sickness and old age and death, but somewhat based on also our relationship to experience that we try to grasp onto and cling to things that are not solid, real, permanent, that we treat them and treat ourselves as solid, real, permanent. So now we'll uh, double-click on something of that, which is uh, mindfulness as a tool. So mindfulness is this tool that allows us to see into this, that allows us to see into the way things really are. Uh, and. Yeah, I mentioned that I'd spent um, a good deal of time doing um, intensive practice in sort of monastic forum and in retreat center, like probably about five years when I stack it all up of intensive practice. Right? It's very useful, very helpful. Uh, and now my life is basically in the world. So the things that I engage with and I'm interested in as part of the path, the path of liberation, which is actually very broad, includes about relationships and work and uh, money and, uh, in this case, uh, technology. Right? So how many people here used a uh, computer today? Went online or something? Okay. And how many people here um, used a cell phone today? Many people. Okay. If you haven't, don't feel left out. You're probably, uh, <laughs> you might have had a more peaceful day than uh, any of us, right? Um, so technology is just part of our life these days, right? to a greater or lesser extent. And particularly what I want to talk about today is about the technology that we use in communication, right? So, um, you know, anything can be called technology. So this clock is technology or shoes are technology in a way, right? The bell is technology here, right? Uh, but the technology of communication, which I think is a particular modern manifestation uh, and a particularly interesting and somewhat sticky one for many of us uh, in our relationships and communication in the world. So technology definitely can make life easier, right? uh, and uh, it has changed the way that we live and that we relate to people. Right? But like many things, once you solve one problem, a lot of other problems crop up. Right? So uh, you know, it's been said that uh, technology helps us to bring uh, close those who are far away, but it actually distances us from people who are close. So as evidence of this, I live in San Francisco in the um, Mission, and there are many um, coffee shops in which there's Wi-Fi and people go there to work and so on. And if you go to those coffee shops, it's like a bunch of people tapping away on their keyboards, but basically ignoring each other, you know, direct the people directly right around each other, right? So like, okay, maybe you communicate with someone in like Ghana or, you know, Bhutan or something like that, but like the person next to you could, you know, like pass out and they would, you know. <laughs> You know, with the earphones and everything like that, you know. So it's interesting to notice that, um, that aspect of things. Technology can be a great uh, tool for connection. So I actually have uh, been able to use technology to connect with a lot of my family. So a lot of my cousins live in Sri Lanka or actually a kind of diasporic family. So England and Australia, all over the place. And um, we're connected online now. So we can share pictures and what we're up to and things like that. And prior to this, we'd see each other every couple years. You know, so much more distant. So definitely technology has its uh, very positive sides. Right? But on the other hand, you have to learn how to manage it well. Right? So how can technology become part of actually a path? How can it become a tool that we use as opposed to something that rules us? Right? So some of you might have had the experience of being with someone, or you might even be this person, uh, where uh, you're with someone talking to them, and then their cell phone rings, right? And then they um, will take the call, and then they get totally absorbed in that call. They're talking to that person, and kind of forget that you're there, and then you know, hang up, and then something else happens. You know, a text comes in, and then get drawn away to that, right? Um, 
And it feels like it's cultivating a sort of disjointed attention in us, you know, unless we're very mindful about what's happening uh, and how we can use technology for uh, our own benefit and the benefit of others, right? So mindfulness is bringing the power of awareness, bringing a sense of presence that's non-judgmental, that can see things the way it is, knowing how things are just in this moment, right? Mindfulness actually gives us a choice from playing out what our condition patterns might be. So our condition patterns are just like what arises that's been kind of like pre-programmed into us, like the automatic habits of body and mind, right? So what we answer to, what draws our attention. And you see this when you sit in meditation, right? So you decide like, oh, I'm going to stay with my breath, right? And then these patterns of mind arise, right, of worry. Uh, of fear, of memory, right? And we get pulled into them, right? We get pulled into the stories of them, right? Over and over again in some way, right? And then the patterns of how we relate to that too. The patterns of how gentle we are, the patterns of uh, how we relate to a body pain, something like that, right? These are all these habits that we have. So mindfulness actually gives us this opportunity to uh, see how things are and actually have more of a moment of choice, and this is actually true with uh, technology, too. Among the, the challenges, I think, with uh, technology is that in some ways it's kind of like we skip over some of the other sense stories, right? So even though we're still physically alive, many times when we're interacting with technology, texting, on email, we lose connection with our physical body, right? It's kind of like just the mind exists, right? Uh, and this is one reason why people get a lot of, I think, like repetitive strain injuries or, you know, problems from working on uh, computers and things like that is because we lose our connection to our physical body. So something starts to feel strained and we like push through that, right? We also sometimes lose connection with our heart, right? With our emotions, like knowing what our intentions are, right? Knowing what we're feeling, right? We kind of go into this pure thought zone, or so we think. Because in actuality, all of these things are continuing in our life, right? So the physical body is still going through its organic process. Uh, the emotional life is still playing out. But because we're not aware of that, sometimes this leads to uh, unskillful uh, communication or getting too distracted with things, right? So I thought I'd reflect a little bit about how communication of technology connects with several different aspects of the Buddhist teachings, among them about wise communication, which is part of the precepts and the Eightfold Path, uh, about looking at craving, tanha, which is one of the keys to uh, liberation, looking at uh, cultivating focus, concentration versus cultivating distractedness, right? and cultivating a connection to the emotions and intention. So one of the aspects of being an enlightened being is that actually one is completely grounded in the way things are, which includes being completely grounded in the fact of interconnectedness, right? That we're not actually separate from each other, right? So this is true both energetically and actually, like we're not these separate entities like wandering around, even though visually you can see like, okay, there's the outline, this color shirt, you know, so that's true on the visual level, but other levels, there's much more connection and uh, interconnectedness, right? So an enlightened being operates from this state, which means actually that naturally one follows what are uh, called the training precepts. So basically the ethical guidelines that for those of us who are not fully enlightened are recommended for us to listen to and pay attention to and like uh, cultivate and so on, right? So I think that's interesting that if you're completely aligned with the way things are, then you basically are naturally ethical, right? So the precepts aren't really emphasized a lot in many um, different aspects of American Buddhism, I would say. Uh, you know, it's kind of a little like square, you know, I'm going to talk about this stuff, right? But I remember one of my meditation teachers telling me, you know, if you want to learn meditation and you want to ignore the precepts, basically how you act and speak and interact with others, 
Uh, you know, it's kind of like you want to row a boat, but you're leaving it tied to the dock. Right? So, you know, you, you might get some distance depending on how much rope you have. <laughs> but eventually, <laughs> you are going to get snagged by that, right? So this is about our manifestation in the world, right? About how we speak, how we act. And the uh, precepts themselves, the main ones for lay people, are kind of these sort of PowerPoints of energy, interaction, uh, karma. There's really important moments, basically, for us to particularly pay attention in our life as human beings, right? Very powerful moments. So one is around killing, right? So the first precept. Uh, is I undertake the training, I undertake the precept. And these precepts are training, they're not like commandments, but it's like, okay, hold this, practice with this, see what happens when you do it, see what happens when you don't do it, you know, learn from this, right? So I undertake the precept to refrain from killing living beings, right, from destroying life. So that's the first one, right? Now, of course, you can go into um, more positive uh, versions of that about, you know, uh, protecting life and cultivating life and things like that. But the sort of main uh, kind of low bar precept is like not killing other uh, forms of life. I read a funny um, article in the newspaper The Onion, some of you may be familiar with, that was about um, God clarifying the, <laughs> the commandment, thou shalt not kill. It's like, I thought I put it, if I put it in a sentence, of four words, it would be clear. <laughs> but since it doesn't seem to be for many, many people, let me clarify what I meant by that. <laughs> Under no circumstances, <laughs> doesn't matter if you don't like them, if they believe something different than you, if they're a different color than you, if they eat different food than you, just don't do it, okay. Uh, second precept is I undertake the training to refrain from taking that which is not freely offered. So, AKA, like stealing stuff, right? So, the first precept around killing is really around sort of aggression, right? Violence, that moment of the mind of wanting to kill, right? This one is actually around that moment usually of greed, you know, of grasping, right? They're like, I need that, I want that, right? And not paying attention to, not respecting uh, other things around that, right? The third precept is. Uh, kind of a combination of the two, but particularly around sexual energy. Right? I undertake the precept to refrain from, it's called sexual misconduct, or using sexual energy in a harmful way for myself and others. Right? So just recognizing that as embodied animals, like this is a very powerful force in our life and can cause us to do things that we later regret. So much pain has been caused to uh, so many people from very young age, right, based on sexual energy, sexual conduct, being used in a way that's unskillful, right? So this is like training on, pay attention to this, right? Pay attention to this in your, the way that you act and the way others act towards you. Now the fourth and the fifth are the ones that um, perhaps technology fa falls more clearly uh, within. The fourth one is around uh, wise speech, right? So I undertake the precept to refrain from unskillful speech, incorrect speech. And then the fifth one is, I undertake the precept to refrain from intoxicating substances that cloud the mind and lead to carelessness. Right. So the fifth one is basically, don't they take things that will, despite your otherwise good intentions, lead you to break numbers one through four. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so pay attention to that. Right? So the speech one, I think, is particularly uh, relevant to the technology of communication. And, um, the Buddha kind of breaks it down further. In some ways, these precepts are, uh, you know, kind of vague, like, oh, you know, unskillful speech or, you know, sexual misconduct. And there's certain things that are, you know, spelled out about them. Um, but other things, they're really not because it's for us to pay attention to and explore, you know. So in that way, in some ways, it's harder. And in some ways, it's better. It makes you actually pay attention, right? It's not like there's like a 10,000-page rule book about it, you know. They go, oh, what happens in this case, you know. So there are some different aspects of it, though, that are clearly spelled out. So the first one is to avoid saying that which is false, right? So avoid lying, right? Speak the truthfully. Right? So how does that play out in technology? So essentially, your technology can be kind of a veil sometimes, you know? Uh, there's a, a veil between you and the other person. They don't actually see you, right? 
So I've, I've definitely have um, experienced this happening where I'm with someone and they're like, oh yeah, I'm on my way, you know. They're not really on their way, right, on the telephone. <laughs> you know, they're sitting here with me, right? <laughs> You're not moving yet, you know. <laughs> it's like, oh no, no, I'm on my way. I'm, right. So you can notice the way in which, you know, you have this tendency to like want to, you know, mask things or, you know, you can do this. Or with email, it's like, oh, you can uh, shade things a little bit. So paying attention to that. So it's avoiding uh, saying what's false. Um, also avoiding harsh speech, abusive speech. That's another aspect of skillful speech, right? So avoiding, uh, you know, that's the intention to harm coming out through speech. So uh, they're just saying that you know, we're all bo born with a weapon in our mouth, you know, which is our tongue, right? So yeah, punching someone can be hurtful, but also, you know, if you've ever gotten a real tongue lashing from someone, someone cussing you out, uh, someone yelling at you, speaking to you really meanly, right? Like it hurts, right? Like it hurts. And you can feel that. Uh, you see this with little kids, right? Little kids will just cry, you know? Like little kids are not pretending to be tough or anything. You know, someone yells at them, they'll just cry, you know? Later on, it's like you learn to look tough. But I think still it hurts us when people speak to us meanly, right? Regardless how old you are, right? So I think that's this veil again of technology. I think people kind of, you know, text people or email things um, that they wouldn't necessarily otherwise say in person, you know. So on uh, blogs, this is called flaming, right? Where you know, people start like getting into this really vitriolic kind of back and forth about something, usually some kind of obscure technical theoretical point, you know. Um, but that really means a lot to the person in that moment, you know. And it seems like with this, this thing with technology also is that in some ways it's like your mind can sort of directly go from thought to send it to another person's thought without actually having to do what you have to do in speech, which is bring it to the level of actually physical activity, right? And there's some screen that happens there, as well as I think the screen of having another human being in front of you that can kind of be a good uh, uh, way of holding us back a little bit, you know, making us restrained sometimes in what we say. But if you don't see someone in front, sometimes you can just really, you know, let it go. Which is why one of the skillful things to do, of course, is to save drafts of things, right? <laughs> you know, save drafts of things if you really want to react and then, you know, look at it a day later. Or get your friend who's um, not as crazy in this situation to look at it too, right? Get a little perspective on things, yeah. Also, uh, another aspect of this skillful speech is avoiding gossip, slander, uh, divisive speech, right? So this is interesting when looking at the um, internet, uh, particularly, um, you know, when do you forward things on, right, that you get an email, right? Or even looking at, well, what, what do I spend my time on? You know, what kind of websites do I spend my time on, right? Uh, there's like a lot of information out there, you know, about all kinds of random things about people's lives and, you know, like how much of that do I actually consume? Which kind of leads to the fourth aspect. So it was uh, to avoid false speech, avoid harsh speech, right? avoid gossip slander. And the fourth one uh, for speech is to avoid idle chatter. Right? So uh, for lay people, you wonder, like, what does that mean? Like for, for monks and nuns, it's the big list of things that they're not supposed to talk about. Because basically, they're supposed to talk about the Dharma. right? That's one-pointed, you know, drive everything into this one thing. So they're not supposed to talk about politics or about uh, other people's business or, you know, like all kinds of things. But for lay people, we do have to engage in whatever business we're in and so on, right? But there still can be a line, you know? Like, what does it mean, idle chatter? Like, what is excessive speech? When am I straying into subjects that I don't really need to talk about, right? And what's the effect of that on myself and other people, right? And what would happen if I was just quiet during those times, you know? <laughs> like, what am I afraid of in that? Why do I use these things? Like, what is that about? Right. So some of the idle chatter is in terms of what we consume, right? And this kind of gets into that fifth precept, which is around intoxicants that cloud the mind. You know? And the, uh, the uh, Vietnamese teacher Thich Nhat Hanh has a very beautiful articulation of that precept around um, you know, uh, consuming a diet that's good for myself and for society. You know? So not just about the food and drink that we take in, but also about what things we read, right? Like what movies we watch, right? So what websites do we go to? Like what is it that we're taking in? Because all that stuff is actually conditioning our mind, you know? So you may notice that when you sit in meditation, 
like basically all this stuff gets churned up from your day, right? So conversations you've had with people, uh, songs that you heard on the radio, memories, uh, and then also information stuff gets kicked up, right? Like all the stuff that we've consumed during the day, it's kind of knocking around, right? So this is a cause and effect, you know, karma is basically like cause and effect, right? Like nothing disappears, everything has an effect, you know? So paying attention to this uh, aspect of technology, like what are we taking in, how much are we taking in, how much do we need to take in, right? And what are we also putting out? So the fifth precept when it's talking about uh, drink and drugs also relates to something about um, addiction, And it's helpful to notice that. That may be like a very serious word to talk about, uh, particularly when related to technology. But it's good to be really honest with yourself about what your relationship is with different things, right? In some ways, I feel like this path is one of um, becoming more and more honest with yourself. You know, it's the truth of the way things are, including like the truth of what is going on here, right? So I feel like one of the best things that you can do as someone who is interested in uh, practice and dhamma is to really take a vow to be as honest as possible with yourself uh, at all times, right? Regardless of what you're going to tell someone else about what's going on, just like try and really be truthful with yourself. So, you know, pay attention, like, oh, am I addicted to my iPhone? You know, right? Many people are, right? Or am I addicted to my, you know, when I wake up in the morning, do I have to see, like, did someone send me something or, you know? Um, like, what's the quality of mind? Like, here's where to look is like, what's the quality of mind as I reach for something, you know? What's that quality of mind? So the root of addiction is craving, right? There's this, this sense of like, leaning forward, right? So this doesn't mean that, uh, you know, we have to let go of enjoying things or pleasant things or using things or anything like that, but we have to pay attention to what's the quality in the mind as we take something, right? As we reach for something. It's like this quality of leaning, Right? Is craving. Right? It's kind of like mentally as if we were always like going around like this physically, you know, like leaning forward, right? Like it becomes very uncomfortable after a while, right? But that's what it's like when there's craving, this leaning forward, right? So learning to, to attend to when is there this sense of craving in the mind? When is there this leaning, this grasping, right? What's that like? Like actually feel the pain of that. So it's one of those things where if we're not really paying attention, then uh, this goes on and it just drives us. Right? Like it drives us to do all kinds of things, craving, right? For whatever it is, right? And it could be craving for uh, your email itself. It could be craving related to like internet porn. It could be craving for, uh, you know, even something like I need to know the baseball scores. Like I need to check, like refresh every like 10 seconds, you know, something like that. Like just notice the quality in your mind, right? So there's nothing unethical about following baseball, right? So, uh, you know, it's fine, but it's like, what's, what's my relationship to that activity? Right? Like, what's going on and how is that conditioning me? Right. So there's this craving that happens with information, right? Uh, and you can get all kinds of information on the web, right, of all different kinds. So basically, like, some question pops into your head, random question, like, uh, you know, I wonder where alligators live, right? You can be like, oh, okay, I'll look that up, you know, right? <laughs> look that up, you know. Uh, like, oh, I wonder how old Angelina Jolie is now. Okay, I'll look that up, right? <laughs> So you notice like these different things, like how is that going to affect your day, yeah, right? You're going to send her a birthday card, like what's, you know, like what's going on with that, right? Different questions just come up, like, oh, I wonder, what, you know, what's about this, I wonder, you know. And, and then we can just, you know, in, with relatively little effort, like look something up, right? But it's, it's sort of like this constant movement, this constant craving uh, for information, right? And watch that. I mean, just it's good to watch that with mindfulness, with some humor and appreciation, because it's just a pattern of mind, you know, and it's endless, you know. So here's the thing with this craving, with this kind of desire, is that the promise of it is like, like I just need this one thing, you know, <laughs> right? Like, I just need this one thing, and then I'll be good, you know, then I'll be at peace. I just need this one thing. But that one thing changes, you know. You can insert, you know, alligators, Angelina Jolie, weather in Cincinnati, you know, the year of Russian Revolution, you know, anything. It just come, 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 you know, you get this and the next one comes in, right? So notice that it's like uh, that pattern of mind and that uh, illusion, really, that, oh, when I get that, it'll be good, you know. And it's a way that we relate to much of our life, too, in many ways, right? It's like, oh, well, you know, when I finish school, then I'll be happy, you know. When I get this car, then I'll be happy, right? 
uh, when I finally get that leak fixed, then I'll be happy. When this happens, when this happens, right? When I get a haircut, mm, 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 right? It's always like that. There's always something, right? So like noticing that uh, belief, that tendency of mind. And it's not to say that there are some changes in our life that are not better than others, right? Uh, but what's our relationship to that, right? And understanding that in a world of changing phenomena, uh, which we call this samsara, there's always going to be something else, right? So we'll go back to that, you know, seeking happiness in permanence of conditions. Like when I get this, everything will be fine. Is basically a losing strategy, you know, in the samsara, right? And yet we go after that time and time again, right? Time and time again. And this craving for information is this one aspect of that, right? I got to know this, I'll know this, I'll know this, right? Another aspect of craving is craving for becoming. So this is actually like identity. This is actually a kind of more subtle aspect of uh, craving. Craving for becoming, and then there's the other side, which is craving for non-becoming. Craving for actually disappearing. So this craving for becoming is a very interesting place to look uh, in your life. And we basically kind of like take birth in different relationships with people all the time. You know, like we kind of take birth in different roles. And it happens very quickly. It happens very subtly. It's not necessarily a bad thing that that happens, right? So you might have a certain position in your family, right? You're like a mother or a sister or a child. And, you know, in that relationship with your family, you kind of take birth as that person. You go to your work and then, like, you take birth as that person, as that uh, office worker or uh, barber or auto mechanic or whatever you do, right? Um, I was writing the um, Bart the other day and um, was just going somewhere and then this young guy recognized me as a Dharma teacher that he had sat with in the young adult retreat and then he had these questions he wanted to ask me, right? So suddenly I was like from being just kind of a slouched person on Bart, I like took birth <laughs> as a Dharma teacher again, you know. Uh, so it's interesting to see this, um, this arising. Oftentimes we also don't see uh, identities that we hold on to until they get disrupted in some way, right? So I had an experience with this recently where um, uh, I'd been traveling around and then I was like, you know, I should start going to the gym again, you know, going teaching retreats, this and that, not getting regular exercise. So I decided to go to a spin class. Some of you may be familiar. This is where there's like all these stationary bicycles and then one person in a stationary bicycle in the front and they're telling you like, stand up and sit down and go fast and go slow and, you know, stuff like this. So I actually have this, um, I have a a kind of glorious athletic past. Like I was a really good athlete in high school and I got all these all metro team things and then uh, I rode my bike cross country and, you know, so I still had this idea that I had this really great uh, athlete. So I was in this spin class and... (laughs) You know, totally getting like worked over in spin class, you know, really tired. And these people who look like, you know, much less athletic than me are like doing fine. You know, it's not a competitive class, but again, the habits, you know, <laughs> habits arise. Like, why are they doing better than me? You know? um, I was like, wow, didn't I just ride my bike across country? I was like, oh, yeah, that was 20 years ago. <laughs> oh, no wonder I can't keep up in spin class. Yeah. <laughs> it starts to dissolve, right? So the sense of becoming, you know, you become different things. And it's interesting to notice with uh, technology, with things that come in, you know, in this very subtle form, it's just like little dots on a screen, but it actually causes identity to arise, right? So I think this is part of that, you know, why we like to interact. It's sort of like at some point there's sort of, we're sort of idling in non-existence. And then an email arises, right? And it suddenly is like you become someone in a relationship to that. Like, oh, someone is talking to me. You're like, you arise, right? Oh, even if they're mad at you, it still is like something, you know? <laughs> it's like something. Like you arise in relationship to this. I got something now, you know, something to chew on, right? Or a text message like, oh, who cares about me? Look, oh, it's about me, you know? It's like noticing this, this sense or noticing the disappointment if there's nothing there, right? You check it, oh, nobody wants to talk to me. There's no, you know, there's no, you know, no voicemails, no emails. Like, oh, I don't exist today. You know, right? <laughs> So this sense of, of identity arising and uh, our attachment to that, really. So, you know, it's, this, it's the craving and the attachment that really is the issue, right? So, you know, and when you, you try to attach to things, then you suffer. So, like, you know, my idea that I'm this, like, great cyclist, like, I was suffering because I had still held on to that for 20 years for some reason, you know? It's like, it's not even true anymore, right? So it's like, okay, let's just be how it is right now, right? 
to see what's really true, right? And it's actually okay if we can hold it in the moment of something arising, it's true, then we do take on an identity and we have to react appropriately, right? So as a parent, you act in one way with the human being in front of you, right? As a boss, you act in one way with the human being in front of you. You know, at the gas station, you act in one way, right? So it's just, can we like hold that, but then let it go, you know? Be in that moment and then let it go, right? Or is there this leaning, like, oh, I want to be this, I want to hold on to this? Because that's really where the stickiness and uh, suffering comes in, right? So that's something interesting to look into uh, with that as well. All right, so distraction versus centeredness. So one aspect of the meditation is actually cultivating this sense of centeredness, right? So when you're sitting, you're, you're actually kind of simplifying things for the moment, trying to stay with your breath, right? You know, I talked about the six different sense doors, you know, our life as being six different sense doors. And when you're sitting, here's the secret, is that sometimes it seems like a lot of things are going on, right, in your meditation. In truth, usually there's only one of three things going on, right? Because if you've closed your eyes and if you're not eating something immediately, you know, usually seeing, smelling, tasting are not predominant, right? So actually what's happening is body sensation, which includes breath, is awareness of body sensation, right? Hearing occasionally happens, right? And then the mind. So thoughts come through, memories come through, images come through. So sometimes if it seems all too complicated when you're sitting in meditation, you can just try practicing with just labeling one of those three things, right? Thinking, sensing, hearing, right? And notice it's always one of those three things. Occasionally maybe some like food will dislodge from dinner and you'll taste it, right? <laughs> but that's more rare, right? That's more unusual occurrence. Usually it's those three things. If it is, then you can go, oh, the fourth. Okay, that's what it is, right? So it's usually like pretty simple like that. Um, so, and, and we use one of those, you know, the breath, or sometimes people use hearing as an object for stability. So cultivating the mind, cultivating a sense of concentration, right? Now, concentration is not actually like bearing down, you know, in a tight way, but it is this way of collecting our energy, collecting and focusing our energy, right? And in all this practice and all the path, it's about cultivating qualities of mind and heart, right? So cultivating this sense of collectedness, which you do in your meditation practice, and also what you probably do in some other aspects of your life. So for example, people who uh, are painters, right? So usually when they're doing that activity, they're very focused on that, right? Uh, and just doing that. Or some people who are runners, you know, like if you think about what's an activity that I really love doing, oftentimes it's an activity in which it's really easy for you to focus, right? You almost like lose yourself, you lose your sense of self in that because you're just doing that thing, just focusing on that thing, right? So this path of mindfulness is actually cultivating that sense of presence in all different aspects of our life, right? Now our relationship to technology oftentimes is cultivating the opposite, right? So it's good to notice what we're cultivating, right? So oftentimes we're cultivating distractedness, right? So for example, if you're uh, working and you have your um, email up and you, you know, tend to be someone who will work on the computer, but then every time an email comes in, like you go and look at it, right? And then do something with it you're actually not cultivating that same steadiness in some ways, right? So it's kind of as if you're um, trying to do something at work and then uh, like pre-email you'd get memos, those are, you know, you know mem paper memos and little envelopes, little brown envelopes, right? <laughs> Inter-office mail. So it's kind of as if you kept getting these things or someone would come in and like throw one of them at your head, you know, <laughs> right? And then you would stop what you're doing and immediately look at it and do what it says, right? and then go back to what you're doing, and then someone else throws something else, you know, and then you go smooth that out and do what it says, right? So it's like that. If you just keep your email box open, you're like, oh, okay, what does that say? I gotta do that. What does that say? I gotta do that. You know, we're cultivating this distractedness, this kind of reaction, right? The mind of reaction. I mean, see if this is true. Pay attention in your life, in your work, if this is true or not, right? This is what I'm saying, but it may not be true. Like, notice basically what we're cultivating in these ways. Or, you know, like I was saying, that tendency to, you know, have the cell phone or the, the there and like always look at every text or reply to it, right? It seems to cultivate a certain distractedness, right? It's like a reaction, you know, sort of reacting uh, as opposed to cultivating composure and more a sense of uh, active choice, right? So just pay attention to what it is that we're cultivating in this way. The last thing I'll say before opening up is about um, cultivating a sense of body and emotions. 
So I mentioned this in the beginning that we kind of lose connection with our physical body oftentimes and lose connection with our emotions, right? And yet they're always there, right? So becoming more aware of our intention when we are uh, communicating with someone is a really helpful thing, right? So one way of doing this is, you know, before you're writing an email to someone, to actually connect with your heart, right? Like actually connect with like, okay, what am I feeling in this, right? And then as you write it, to see if you can write something you know, at the end or somewhere in it that actually expresses some kind of positive feeling towards this person in some way, right? So in the end of the meditation today, we did a short time of the metta practice of the well-wishing, you know? And it feels different if that's your orientation towards other human beings, right? It's like, oh yeah, like, may you be well, may you be healthy, may you be happy, right? Just as I wish to be happy, may you be happy, right? So you don't need to start like writing in that kind of stilted language in your emails or anything, you know. <laughs> but, you know, in whatever seems natural to you, you know, like hope you're well or, you know, take care. Like whatever it is, you know, can you actually put that in somewhere? And then also as you're sending it, can you actually wish well for that person? So that actually makes you remember like, oh, yeah, I'm sending this to a person, to like a human being who may be having a good day, maybe having a bad day, you know, maybe having good health, maybe is having trouble with their bicycle, maybe is feeling nauseous, you know, any number of things can happen to any human being, right? So, oh, okay, let me wish well for them as I send that hit send, right? So paying attention to our intention, like what is the intention? And this path is one of cultivating these intentions, right? So with mindfulness, when we sit, we're becoming aware of what there is in the body, in the mind, in the heart. But also there's an aspect of cultivating those that are wholesome, right? So generosity, kindness, compassion and then seeing and letting go of the ones that are unwholesome. So jealousy, revenge, uh, hatred, stuff like that, right? So the first step is knowing what's there, so being able to recognize these different aspects, and then knowing like, oh, which are the ones that I wanna continue, I wanna cultivate, I wanna act on, I wanna speak with, and what are the ones that I wanna see and let go of, just knowing that this is unskillful conditioning, right? So this is true in regular life and speech, and this is particularly true, I think, when you're kind of quietly there interacting with technology. Like, okay, what is it that's coming up for me? Is this an intention that I want to act on or is it not? Right. So paying attention to that. So for those of us who use technology a lot, and you know, some people say like, oh, well, it's so hard, it's so terrible, we should just like get rid of it, right? You know, but I feel like it's, it's just here to stay, it's part of our lives, and it's just to, to learn to use that skillfully, right? Um, and particularly those of us who use that a lot, or it's just become part of the way that we communicate and deal with things, it's like, make it part of your path, you know? Just get interested in, in these different ways and make that part of your own path of awareness. Like, make that part of your own path of liberation, right? Anything can be part of your path of liberation, whatever it is, you know? So in some ways, yeah, the Buddha didn't um, address these things, but in other ways, he totally did, right? This has all been talked about, about communication, about intention, paying attention to craving, about concentration. So it was 2,600 years ago when uh, he was roaming around on the planet, but still, it was, uh, it was going on then. Um, I want to actually share one thing in closing with you, which is from uh, one of the suttas. So this is the uh, stories from the time of the Buddha that were uh, transmitted orally and then written down. So this is actually regarding an instance of uh, spiritual powers that is like... Uh, technology. So, so all these, these suttas usually start with, thus have I heard, so because they've been sort of passed down. So on one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling in Savati, in the Jetha's Grove. So this is a particular city in northern India that he spent time in. And Sariputra and Venerable Mahamogalana, who are two of his key disciples, who are actually cousins, uh, were dwelling in Rajgaha, in the Bamboo Grove. So they're basically like uh, 350 miles away from each other. So they're kind of like from here to Central Valley somewhere, right? San Luis Obispo, right? So they spend their days in meditation in their separate uh, locations. And Sariputta and Moggallana meditate separately. And then they kind of come together at the end of the day and they talk about how their day of meditation practice went. So Sariputta says, Friend Moggallana, your faculties are serene. Your facial complexion is pure and bright. Has the Venerable Maha Moggallana spent the day in a peaceful dwelling? Right? So it's like, oh, you look good, right? Did you have a good day of meditation, right? He says, oh, I spent the day in a gross dwelling, friend. So not so good, right? But I did have some Dhamma talk. 
with whom did Venerable Mahamulana have some Dhamma talk? So he's curious because it's just the two of them, right? He didn't hear anything, so who's he talking to, right? I had some Dhamma talk with the Blessed One friend. So the Blessed One is the Buddha, right? But the Blessed One is far away, friend. He's now dwelling at Savati. Did the, and then he asked him basically, like, how did you approach him? You know, did he use magical powers to fly there? Did, you know, how did this play out? He says, oh, I didn't approach him by these spiritual powers. Rather, the Blessed One cleared his divine eye and divine ear element to communicate with me, and I cleared my divine eye and divine ear element, element to communicate with him. And then he gave me a Dhamma talk, basically, about rousing energy. You know. So actually, if you, if you develop concentration powers to an extremely high degree, you don't need 3G or 4G networks to uh, communicate. You can actually develop the divine eye and the divine ear and then uh, go without them. So this is uh, uh, this kind of uh, very powerful Wi-Fi from 2,600 years ago, <laughs> minus any uh, particular systems. So, but you know, since you can get a cell phone plan for relatively cheap, then you don't need to spend all that time as well. So, so thank you for listening to these reflections on technology. And I open it up if people have um, questions or comments or reflections that you have too with your own struggles or triumphs in this area. Yeah. Yeah, so the question is, um, if you're craving to check the baseball scores or something like that, so then what should you do, right? So the first thing is actually, yeah, to know that that's what's going on, you know, um, and actually to feel that. So this is the, the mindfulness part, like craving for anything, is actually to get to know this aspect of craving, right? So actually feeling it. And feeling it with mindfulness means actually like feeling it in your body, feeling it in your mind. So actually knowing more and more, like, well, what is the mind with craving like? Like, what is the mind that's relaxed and open like, and what is the mind of craving like? Like, what does it feel like in my mind? What does it feel like in my body, right? And it's the kind of thing that because we're not aware of such things, like, we don't necessarily know them until we're, you know, kind of at level 10 craving, right? But as we become more and more aware of that, then we can sort of start to pick it up sooner and sooner, like, when this dynamic is going on, right? And then actually to just pay attention, you know? So, like, you know, the teachings are that craving leads to suffering, right? And that... Uh, you know, letting go will lead to freedom. But you have to check it out yourself. You know, basically you have to check it out yourself and see in your experience. So you have this craving to do this, so pay attention to like what there is in the body and mind, what it feels like to, to grab for that. And then pay attention both ways. Like when I do keep refreshing and clicking on that, like what is that like? And then as an experiment, you can say like, well, what if I don't do that, right? Like what if I actually notice the craving but then actually don't do the thing that I'm supposed to, you know, that I'm being told I should do, right, in my mind. It's like, oh, I need to know, I need to know, right? Like, what happens then? So it's a very interesting uh, experiment to do. The craving itself, like the, the sort of myth behind craving is that, like, I need to do this thing, right? And it's actually getting the object of my craving that's going to bring peace, right? Like, I need to check the baseball scores. I need to get that car. I need to, you know, whatever it is, right? But actually, it's the craving itself that is the disruption to our peace, right? So we have this idea like, oh, when I get this object, then peace will be here because I will have this object. But the truth is that peace was there. Craving is the thing that's actually disrupting. It's not the absence of the object, right? And you can notice this too because the craving keeps coming with different objects. Like it's the baseball scores, and then it's the capital of uh, you know Poland, and then it's like you know it's like all different things. It's like oh, what's on TV? It's like... So notice that too. Like notice that. Uh, the similarity of that quality, despite what the object is, too. You know, becoming more and more familiar with that. So in some ways, it's kind of like learning to read, you know, like becoming more familiar with different mind states and qualities of mind and heart. It's like learning to read. Um, and when you first try and learn to read, like it's hard, right? It's hard to read if you try to learn a different language. Um, so when I lived in Sri Lanka for um, a while after I finished college, I knew how to speak, but I didn't actually know how to read that well because I grew up in Baltimore, right? So didn't learn that. But when I was there, I was living in different places, and so it was helpful to learn how to read some, and particularly to take the bus, right? So in the buses, the name of the place that uh, you're going to is written on the front of the bus. And in the beginning, I could read kind of like a second grader, so I'd read very slowly, you know? So the bus would be coming, and I'd be trying to read it as it's coming, and I'd be like, new 
<laughs> and the bus would be gone. So I couldn't tell, should I flag this bus? Should I get on the bus? Yeah, I didn't know. You know, like, we know. So then I'd try, like, just flagging. If I saw the first letter seemed good, I would try flagging it and get on. Then I'd read the rest. Oh, no, I need to get off this bus. It's, like, not the right one, you know. But then after a while, I got better at it, you know, so then I could read sooner, and then I'd know, okay, should I get on this bus? Should I not get on this bus? And it was easier, right? So it's actually like that with learning how to read the states of mind and heart, right? So what's actually coming through now? Like, is it craving? Is it jealousy? Is it love? Is it compassion? Is it hatred, right? So we haven't learned how to read these things, right? Like, we don't learn this in school, like paying attention to your mind-body system and what's here. And in the beginning, you only know it once the train has like run you over, you know, like or once you're already on that train. And then it's like, oh, how did I get here into like jealousy town? This is terrible. You know? It's like bitter and cold wasteland. You know, it's like, you know, but you got on that train, you know, you got on that train when the first thought came up, you know, and then, you know, you follow that down. But we didn't know that's the train we're on, right? Or sometimes we'll get on another train. It's like just heads there and it's just habit. You know, it's just habit. It's just habit. So this mindfulness is like learning how to read the science, really. You know, sort of like learning how to read these uh, signs on the bus and the train. And then you can know, like, okay, is this one I want to get onto or is this not one I want to get onto, right? So like this with the craving. So it's like, okay, pay attention. Like, oh, identify. Oh, okay, this is craving. This is what this feels like. And then actually when you get on it, see where it goes. <laughs> you know, see where you end up. See what kind of neighborhood you end up in with that, right? And see if you can get back and see, if, you know, watch the cycle of that. Um, so, you know, the official thing is like, yeah, craving leads to suffering, you know, letting go leads to freedom. But you actually have to kind of pay attention and learn that yourself. And the more you learn that on a really visceral level, you know, the more it happens automatically, right? So unfortunately, the, the learning on the visceral level often means learning suffering on a visceral level, right? <laughs> so the more we actually get in touch with the pain and the actual, like the dukkha, the difficulty of these states that we think are going to lead to happiness, like, oh, I should follow this craving. I should get what it says to get, and then I'll be happy, right? The more we actually, you know, pay attention to that whole process, then the more we see, like, oh, okay, this, this bus is going to a place that I want to go, right? And then it kind of naturally can happen to let go more and more, right? So. <laughs> I thought I had a mic here that would facilitate <laughs> things. <laughs> Let's see here. So what's the score? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, I turned off my device, I'm sorry. <laughs> Here we go. Okay. All right, other question, comment people have? Okay, this one here. Someone here in the center. I'm old enough that I didn't have a computer in high school. Uh-huh. Texting my phone, things like that are relatively new, but I'm pretty tech literate. And I completely understand what you're talking about with the disconnection of communication, and I feel that when I'm with people who are <coughs> Very, I'm wondering if you think it's going to be a very different kind of um, issue of communication for younger people who uh, have grown up with texting yeah. and with this technology. Yeah. Yeah, so you're pointing out like, that there's a kind of age slash cultural divide in how people deal with technology. Yeah, I think that's totally true. I think that's very true. And uh, I think these things still hold about you know, being honest and truthful and not being abusive, and because a lot of pain comes from even you know young people, use of technology and sending videos of like painful videos of someone who didn't want to be videoed to someone else in school and stuff like that. Um, so I think it still applies, and yet also like what's the effect on other people? So it could be that yeah, people have a different sense and different ways of communicating, and then I think it's good to pay attention to that and see like oh, okay, well what is it that's the effect? So not to be judgmental in some ways in that way. So perspective, like it points to some relativity of experience, uh, which I think is very true. Yeah, I have some younger friends who text about everything, and you know, including like um, you know, one of them, uh, it, when something very serious happens, they texted about it, and I was like, oh, I thought you only text to say like I'm running late, but no, you know, this is a way of communication. So it's like, oh, that's a cultural adjustment, you know. Um, yeah, perspective. Perspective is, is interesting. I had this experience recently. I went to Alaska, and I was hiking. And I had an encounter with a bear, uh, a black bear. But he was kind of at a distance. So it was a, actually a positive, uh, yes, positive encounter, <laughs> the black bear. And I went, went back and I told the ranger. And, um, 
the ranger said, oh, yeah, you know, actually on that, that same path um, last month, there was a bear uh, mauling, right? So a guy was uh, mountain biking and ran into a grizzly, you know. But I was thinking like, oh, well, from the bear's perspective, it probably was like a human mauling, right? Yeah. You know, like from the bear's perspective, it was like, I was just eating berries, minding my own business. And then you know, this, this human on a flying machine came at me and it was all I could do to, you know, try and fend him out. You know, so it's like, oh, yeah, the different perspective is some relativity to it. <laughs> all right. Uh, other hands? Someone? Okay. When you were talking, it's what brought up for me was, um, yeah, um, since this new technology has come available, I guess I was watching the other day a mother um, with her child, and she, it was really, I was, happened to be eating and looking out her way, and, and the whole time I was eating, she was on her phone, and, and the, the, the child was, you know, sort of reaching up for her to like, hey, and then he would go back to playing by himself, and and then she would, you know, then sort of stop and then go, oh, okay, I'll call this person. Meanwhile, the child's still, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and it was extremely annoying. And then the other day, a friend um, was at the grocery store and, and her daughter was getting out of hand. And, and this older person turned around and says, I don't understand. Your generation just doesn't know how to control their kids. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, it, what I thought about was just the sort of the distraction of new technology because it's new for the adults yeah as well as it is for the children and so it's a new you know craving mm-hmm. a new distraction and it's also um i think perpetuates uh, more reactionary stuff mm-hmm. than it does i mean it's almost like people everybody needs to hear these kind of classes you know just to recognize and be mindful of it yeah because i think it perpetuates and then you know sort of what the lady was talking over here i mean the new uh, generation, they don't, I mean, it's, they're, I guess it, it's really tough for them because they're just all about reaction, all about reaction. And uh, you worry if they'll ever get mindful or get to a place to sort of see, you know, it's just sort of harder to teach when you, you grow up just being so reactionary. Mm-hmm. So. Although it's, it also is true, I think, that in each generation sort of subsequently, the last generation has been like, that you know so you know some ancient generations are like oh no they have telephones they never talk to the people in front of them it's crazy you know and then you know if you learn how to manage that you know to work with that then it doesn't have to be a big deal like you have a telephone in your home right but it could be right it could be if you aren't able to manage that skillfully or even like newsprint or something you know like because you know the thing with the mother and the kid and checking you know she could have been looking at articles in a book or something too right like paper book if she was just ignoring the kid and doing that and doing that but it's like, okay, we've learned how to manage some kinds of technology, but not yet others, you know. And as a society, too, like, we haven't, uh, I think... It comes at you so much faster. Yeah, it's yeah. It's like you go home and you, you know, sit or you, you pick up the phone, you know. Like, even before growing up, you didn't have answering machines. And right. Even the dialing, the whole... <laughs> you know, I always hated that you had to go to zero. Right. Zero. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But the time you take makes it slow down a little bit, yeah. 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 It's all just a uh, fodder for paying attention. I think is uh, good. Thank you. Yeah. Someone else is over here. Yeah. I, can you hear me? Yeah. I, I hate this thing. I I recently been watching uh, an ad on TV that's recurring. It's for Jeep. <laughs> and uh, the ad goes this way. Uh, I ride. I live, I am Jeep. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so, so now the, the commercial powers that be have uh, now have made it uh, permissible, go ahead and do it, uh, to identify with your technology. Yeah. Uh, completely, uh, so that you don't have to worry about it anymore. You are your car. Right. And, you know, why not? In for penny, in for pound. Uh, I think that's sort of where it, it, it's heading. You know, I think, that, again, the commercial powers that be do not make these incredibly fetishistic uh, little applications, applications that you cannot live without. 
They don't make those things without addiction in mind. We know that. The idea, of course, is to sell that and then sell the, uh, mm-hmm. the, all the applications and all the variations of it and so on. And good old commercial life just keeps going on and on. Right. And it actually is playing on identity. You know, I mean, it's actually the well, commercial yeah. use of uh, selling identity, identifying with a product, whether and it's a car, iPod, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, it seems very fertile ground because uh, if you're dealing with a huge amount of people for whom, for whom identity is a problem mm-hmm. and a serious problem, then you've got... It's wonderful because... You can then sell them your uh, an identity. It's been going on for a long time. I think uh, I, I don't want to belabor this, but the 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 thing probably to be addressed is the identity, not in terms of self, but in terms of the life that we have. Mm. The very life itself that we have will tell us, always tell us who we are if we need to know that. Mm. But because we've gotten so far away from that, we've objectified the world. You talked about this earlier. Right. It's all out there. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Thank you. Um, yeah. I think it's true, but it also, it's, it's another point at which, you know, I, I hope, hate to leave you all thinking like, oh, technology is bad and scary and we'll sink you kind of thing. Because it's about our relationship to all these things, right? So, you know, as you're describing, like, it could be the same with the car. Like, I am this, you know, I am this car or... I am the sneaker or, you know, in the Buddha's time they had like ox carts. Maybe it's like, oh, I have the best ox cart, you know, like that's who I am, right? I have the best sandals or blacksmith, you know, thing or whatever, you know. So it's an ongoing thing and it's about, you know, like you're describing, it's about our human relationship. You know, it's about our relationship to experience and how we identify. So then really, I mean, the, to, to uh, close for the evening, it's about paying attention to this. You know, this is kind of a new manifestation uh, in the world of a particular kind of speed, communication, identity that's there. But in some ways, it's the same as all the old stuff. Uh, It's just at a more rapid rate and in a kind of different way in which you can kind of communicate mind to mind. But it's really fertile with opportunities to pay attention and to awaken, right? To be able to pay attention to the ways in which we relate around communication, to pay attention to the ways in which we're in our body or not in our body, to pay attention to intention, to pay attention to what we're cultivating, whether it's distraction or centeredness, right? And then that way, all of our little devices can be like our friends and our companions on the path too, right? Actually, our tools for liberation as well as uh, tools for communication. So thank you for your attention this evening. Uh, I ask us to sit for one moment together. We'll share the uh, merit from our practice, which is another act of generosity. So just connecting again with our bodies, with our hearts, appreciating the opportunity to come together with a group of people who are interested in practicing meditation and looking into life in this way. Appreciating ourselves for having come and having attended the best we could, despite all the other things we could have been doing. So from our actions comes blessings We share the blessings, which multiplies them with everyone here and with all beings. May all beings be at peace. May all beings be happy. May all beings be free from suffering. So thank you. Um, 